I want you to turn in the Old Testament to the prophet Haggai's book, Haggai chapter 1. I don't know if you pronounce it Haggai or Haggai, but for me it's Haggai. So we're going to go to Haggai chapter 1. When you get to heaven, just call him whatever name you want to call him. I'm sure he'll make sure he corrects it when you see him. Haggai chapter 1 verse 1. It says, In the second year of King Darius... In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying. Now, verse 1 is important because it sets a time frame for everything that's going to happen in the book of Haggai. Haggai's ministry took place by this time frame because it was the second year of King Darius, his ministry took place among the returned exiles, the Jews who had been in captivity and who had been allowed to come back to Jerusalem from captivity. And they had come back with a command from God. And that command was to rebuild the walls that had been taken down and destroyed around Jerusalem to to begin the process of rebuilding in the temple and, and beginning to restore worship and, and, and a life that honored God in Israel. And that's when Haggai steps onto the prophetic scene. Because we know when the word of the Lord first came to Haggai, and we can read the rest of the book, and, and the specific time frames are mentioned, then Haggai's prophetic ministry took place over a four-month period of time. You say, well, what's so important about that? I think it's vitally important because God raised up Haggai and he called him and he anointed him and he set him into a prophetic office. Now, I'm not saying Haggai never had a prophetic word before this one or that he never had a prophetic word after this one. We honestly don't know. He could have. He probably did. But as far as we know, all of the significant ministry that Haggai had in his life took place in a four-month period of time. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. God raised him up. He called him. He equipped him. He anointed him, set him through all of his life to use him for four months. You say, well, what's so big about that? Are you okay if that's what God wants to do with you? Because, you see, I think there's a problem in the body of Christ, particularly in the West. And we're going to go on in Haggai chapter 1, and I think we'll see it. But we actually think this is all about us. We think that ministry is about us. We think that church is about us. We think that music is about us. We think that worship is about us. We, we think that God's blessings are about us. God's promises are about us. We actually think everything is about us. Now, that's a complete opposite idea of what these Old Testament Jews would have had. Because you see, all of their life revolved around God. Everything in their life centered around God. The temple was the key to their life. So the sacrifices that they made and the songs that they sing and the psalms that they read and the scripture that they read and the commands of God that they followed and the family stories, and they were really good about passing down those family stories among the Jews, that they would pass down from one generation to the next generation. All of them had to do with the people that God had called making extreme sacrifices all for the glory of God. The idea of God doing everything for us would have been an alien idea to the Old Testament Jew. And you say, well, thank God I'm not in the Old Covenant. Praise God, it's all about me now in the New Covenant. I refer to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, and the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said, don't worry. Don't be that means don't be consumed with. Don't be focused upon. Don't be obsessed with what you will eat, what you will drink. Notice that, what you, what you, what you will wear. But instead, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things 
The things that you're, the Gentiles are obsessed and consumed and focused and striving and struggling for, the things that their life is all about. If you will seek first my kingdom, that word first doesn't mean like top of a list. It means center, focus, the focal point. If you will make my kingdom, if you will make my glory, if you will make my word, if you will make my promise, if you will make my gospel the center, the focus, the the focal point of your life, then all these other, and they're just things, guys. They're just things. What you'll eat, what you'll drink. Well, you say, well, they're very important things. God knows that. That's why he said your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And in the context of Matthew 6, he had been talking about how a sparrow never falls from the sky without God being aware of it. He talked about how the lilies of the field, they don't toil or spin to try to have their beauty, and yet there's no, no flower in the field that's more beautiful than all of them. And then he makes this analogy, this correlation. He says, if your heavenly Father takes care of the flowers in the field and the birds in the air like he does, don't you realize that you're far more valuable than a flower or bird? So he says, why are you so consumed with things? Be consumed with me, my kingdom. Well, that's just one verse taken out of many. Well, I'm glad you said that because I want to make sure I make you aware of a few more. Jesus said, if you're going to come to me, let him who wants to be my disciple and come to me, let him first, let him first, oh, let him first be blessed with a shower of glory and power and presence and let him know what all the promises of God are for his life, how he's come to give you the best life you could ever have with all its power and promises and fill you up with joy so that you could just sail smoothly all the way to heaven one day. Matter of fact, it's going to be so good down here, you'll probably have a hard time trying to figure out if you really want to go to heaven or not. Did you know that thought would have been alien to New Testament Christians? I don't believe that. You don't have to believe me. All you got to do is read the Bible. Because the New Testament saints couldn't wait to get to heaven. Matter of fact, they all thought that Jesus would come in their lifetime. John, when he was an old man, was still waiting for Jesus to come. It was about all he, two things he'd ever say is be ready when he comes and love one another. Be ready and love one another. Be ready and love one another. Be ready. What would you do if you came to church and every Sunday I got up here and said, Bless the Lord. Here's the word for today. Love one another and be ready for Jesus to come. Y'all can go home now. Some of you be glad because you're ready to eat right now. But let me promise you, if that's all I ever preached every Sunday, I wouldn't be here very long. No preacher would be anywhere ever long. And do you know that, that history tells us in John's latter years, that's all he ever said. Matter of fact, he was weakened after his, and you can imagine why, after being on Patmos, he was weakened. They'd also tried to burn him in a boil of, of, of boiling, a pot of boiling oil to try to kill him, and they couldn't. So it left some effects and some scars. And they say that when John was an old man, they'd bring him to the churches, and he would exhort the churches, and he would always say the same exact thing. Be ready. Love one another. Be ready. Love one another. He kind of thought that was all you needed to know. And you know what? That's a pretty powerful word if you think about it. What, to be ready every day, every second, every hour, every moment, ready. I'm ready for Jesus to come. I, I know Jesus is coming. I want to live my life as if Jesus, look, what would happen if we lived every day of our life as if Jesus could come just like that? That's why it's such a powerful message. It changes the way you live. And then love one another. Love one another. What would happen if we just did that? If we just loved one another and we stopped in every Thing we did and said, every action, if we stopped and let it flow through, what does love look like in this? If I love like Jesus, how does my what is my next response? If I love like Jesus, what are the next words out of my mouth? If I love like Jesus, what is my next reaction going to be? Can I tell you, I fail at that. I failed at it this morning. I'm gonna tell on me and Tammy this morning. Because she done told on me once, so I'm going to tell on us too. I'll just get it out in the open. We got into it this morning before church. Now I see some of your mouths are hanging open because you can't imagine. And yes, it was Tammy's fault, 110%. And now we're going to get into it this afternoon when we leave, see. No, to be honest, it was my fault. Because I got obsessed over a small thing. And so... If I would have filtered every response and every reaction through what does love look like? How does love react? How does love respond? What are the next words out of my mouth if that word is filtered through the love of Jesus? 
Boy, it would change everything, wouldn't it? It would change everything. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to, first of all, that's where I was going, you've got to take up your cross. Lay down your life. Take up your cross. Follow me. How many modern-day disciples do you think we'd get today if we said, how can I follow Jesus? Well, I don't, I, I, there's a lot of things that I can't be specific about because God's going to have to speak to you, but there's one thing for sure. First thing you've got to do is die. Got to die right now. Your old flesh has got to die. Your old ideas have got to die. Your old dreams have got to die. Your old ambitions have got to die. Selfishness has to die. Pride has to die. Unforgiveness has to die. Bitterness and resentment has to die. You've got to die. And you got to, by the way, it's not just a one-time thing. Paul said you got to crucify your flesh every single day. So get ready. You're going to have to do this every day. Every day you got to deny your flesh. Every day you got to say no to yourself. Every day you got to tell your temper to get down. Every day you got to tell your selfishness to, to go away. Every day you got to take up your cross and follow. Follow me, and then I'm going to make something out of you. Did you know that was the sales pitch Jesus had for discipleship? Boy, how far is the modern-day church from that? Maybe that's why we don't have a whole lot of disciples. We just got a lot of people who just sometimes don't really know. What, what am I doing? Why am I here? Who am I following? Can I believe this? Can I trust this? Things aren't working out right. I don't think God's listening to me. Being a disciple has a cost. Here in the book of Haggai, apparently God raised this great prophet up, and he went through all of his life for four months of at least, as far as we know, usefulness. What if God, now I'm not saying his life wasn't useful when he wasn't prophesying. See, that must be the idea. Apparently you're useful even when you're not on a stage. Apparently you are useful to God even when you're not doing some type of pronounced ministry that everybody can see apparently then ministry goes on outside of the pulpit wow isn't that amazing can i just be honest with you most ministry goes on outside of the pulpit i mean come on guys we're only together a couple times a week don't you think ministry needs to happen outside of those couple times a week and as you know most of the time when we're together we just got at least 99.9 percent christians here in our midst if we're ever going to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to have to happen outside of here. Power of God's going to have to move outside of here. Prayer's going to have to happen outside of here. Healing's going to have to happen outside of here. Deliverance is going to have to happen outside of here. Compassion's going to have to flow outside of here. So Haggai was useful, but his prophetic ministry, at least that is recorded, took place in a four-month span of time. What if God, wants to give you a whole life and only really use you as far as the world is concerned for a short span of time. Is that okay with you? Well, it is if you're a disciple. It's not if you're a star. But see, Jesus didn't call stars. He called disciples. He called people who were willing to die for the sake of the kingdom of God, for His glory not ours. So Haggai begins his ministry, and let's look at what he says. It's a good thing that Haggai was completely submitted to God because his message was going to be very unpopular. Matter of fact, that's another thing we might ought to note is that almost all of the prophets that we read about in the Old Testament had an unpopular message. They didn't come into places and fill people up with all kinds of stories about how good life was going to be. They would usually have to share the thing that they wanted to share the least and especially what the people wanted to hear the least. Well, thank God, Pastor, we're in the New Testament, not the Old. Well, I think it's interesting that in the New Testament it says that in the last days one of the signs will be that people will heap up to themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear because their ears are itching for that. And what that means is their ears long for something that they want to hear, not for the things that they don't want to hear. So I don't see where that's changed that much. Haggai comes into the place with an unpopular message, and here's his word, verse 2. says, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, by the way, means the Lord, the sovereign one, over the army of angels, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So the word of the Lord to the people of Israel who have been sent back, redeemed, rescued, delivered from captivity... Does that sound familiar? Delivered from captivity, redeemed, ransomed, rescued, put into a place to build, to grow, to show forth the glory of God. But they're not doing it. Matter of fact, we'll find out later what they've done is instead of rebuilding the house of the Lord, they all got busy on building them 
their own nice houses. They all got focused on their own lives, so focused on their own lives that they didn't have time for what God had actually called them to do. And so said, here's what the people are saying. Here's the opinion of the people. I'm going to just cut to the chase. It's about us. It's about us. It's not time to build the Lord's house. It's not, it's not time to focus on God. It's not, by the way, you do know that in the New Testament, the Bible says your body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, right? So the temple that God's interested in building is his kingdom, his power, his glory in your house, in your life. But if we get focused on building our own kingdoms and our own power and we start working and living for our own glory and our own satisfaction in our own life, we are just like the group that Haggai is prophesying to. This people say, oh, it's not time yet. It's not time to build the house of the Lord. It's not time to focus on that yet. But the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time? Now, this is God. wouldn't it be interesting if God showed up? Because this is what he's doing. He said, Oh, really? God wouldn't talk like that. Apparently, he did. Oh, really? Well, is it time for you to build your own houses? It's not time to focus on me, but you've got plenty of time to focus on you. It's not time to focus on my glory, but you've got plenty of time to focus on your glory. It's not time to focus on what I've called you to do, but you've got more than enough time to focus on what you want to do. Well, he didn't say that. Well, he said basically the same thing. And this is the word of the Lord through the prophet Haggai to the people because, you see, here's the problem. God had sent them back. He had redeemed them. He had ransomed them for a purpose. And the purpose was being neglected. And while they were neglecting the purpose, we know from the book of Nehemiah, there were still great big gaps in the wall that were open for the enemy to gain access. Worship was not being restored among the people of Israel as God had desired. So he says, is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses and for this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God's calling them. He says, reflect. Take account. Take stock. Pay attention. Look at your life. And I want you to notice these words particularly. You have sown much. Gone out, you worked hard, you worked hard, you worked hard, you worked hard, you sown much. But you bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one's really warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That's a pretty strong word, really. Otherwise, you say, stop. Everybody stop. Take a moment. Reflect. Think. You're spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning, but nothing's happening. You're never satisfied. You're never really fulfilled. You're never content. Nothing ever really works out. You're giving more attention and more time to making everything right, and it seems like about the time you think you got all your ducks in a row, something comes to mess them all up, and everything's all messed up again. Stop, God says. Reflect. Take time out. Think Consider your ways. Something's not right. And now he goes on and he's going to tell them how to turn the corner. He says, go up to the mountain, verse 8, and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Now, again, in the new covenant, God's not interested so much in the buildings we build with wood and stone and brick mortar we are the temple and so God's saying I want you to stop focusing on the glory being for you and the pleasure being for you and the comfort being for you and the convenience being for you. it's not that God's against your blessing 
But we have to put the kingdom in the center. And he said, if we're not, if we're focusing on ourselves while dismissing the kingdom, he said, you're going to find that every, you, oh, you're going to work your hands to the bone, but it's never going to quite work out. You're going to fidget and spin and stress and be anxious and lay awake and toss and turn at night and figure and fix and all the things you do. But about every time you think you get there, it's going to just be blown up. It's not ever going to seem to work out. You never go, And even when you think you got things together, you're really not satisfied. You're really not fulfilled. There's still something missing. That something missing is the kingdom. Because our focus has removed, been removed, we've done it ourselves, from Christ onto ourselves. And so he's saying, I want you to stop. I want you to consider this. I want you to reflect on it. And I want you to go up to the mountain. Now, when I think about going up to the mountain, first of all, I want you to notice he says, go up. He always is pulling us up. He's always causing us to get our eyes off of what's here and get our eyes. That's what Colossians says, set your mind on things where? Above, not on the things of the earth. That's where your life is hidden with Christ and God. Get your eyes off of this life. Get your eyes off of this earth. Get your eyes off of these things. And get your eyes on me. Get yourself focused on who I am and what I'm doing. When I think about mountains, I think of three of the most significant. The mount where Abraham sacrificed or was going to sacrifice. His son Isaac at the command of the Lord. And about the time he was, and when he had lifted up the knife, he, he, the angel of the Lord kind of stopped him and he saw a ram caught in the thicket. And so he sacrificed the ram and the blood of the ram instead of his promised son. And it says there in the mount of the Lord, God has provided. He called that mount Jehovah Jireh, which is the covenant name of God. God will provide. But a mountain was usually a place of sacrifice. We think about Moses spending 40 days and 40 nights on two separate occasions up in the mountain where he met with God himself, and he was given the law there. So the mountain is a place of sacrifice. The mountain is a place of communion with God. And then, of course, you think of Mount Calvary, where Jesus shed his own blood, and his cross was lifted up, and he paid for our sins. The mountain is a place of redemption. So he says, go to the mountain. Go to the mountain and bring wood and build this temple. Build Work, focus on your body being the dwelling place for the Spirit of the Lord. I think about Romans chapter 12 where it talks about how we should present our bodies unto God as a living sacrifice, which most translations render that which is our spiritual worship. Some translations still say your reasonable service, and it certainly is reasonable service considering what God's done. But to offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice every day, that's worship. I think one of the most interesting things that I read, and sometimes it just staggers me because I think, what would happen if our churches if we actually did this? I'm pretty sure I know the answer to it. I think it would be fantastic. But Jesus talked about when you come to the altar to worship, and of course in that system of worship you were bringing some type of sacrifice for the blood to be shed. But he said when you come to the altar to worship and there at the altar you remember that you've got a problem with your brother, He says, I want you to leave your sacrifice at the altar. And I want you to go and make things right with your brother. I want you to notice two things about that. Three, actually. Number one, he didn't mention who was right and who was wrong. In most of our dealings with people, we we will do that if we feel like we're wrong. But God doesn't really care who's wrong and who's right. He just said, if you're coming to worship me and you think you're going to worship me while you're carrying a grudge against your brother, this is not going to work. You go, I don't, I don't care who's right and who's wrong. You go make things. Leave your gift. Stop what you're doing. But God, I'm here to worship. What would happen in the midst of a Sunday morning if we got up in this place and we got ready to play music and sing praise to the Lord and all of a sudden all across this room the Holy Spirit fell and we began to think of people that we didn't have things right with and offenses we were holding and grudges we were holding and we stopped. We said, I can't go through the motions anymore. I got to go make this right. And if the person's in the room, we went and we went and make them. By the way, if this happens, please come up and tell me what you're doing because if we have a mass exodus, I'm going to think something's wrong. But it would really be something's right. If you come up here and you say, Pastor, 
I'm sorry, I can't stay, but God's revealed to me somebody I got to go make things right with, and they're not here right now. I got to go make this right with them, and I got to do it before I can worship. I, I know God's speaking to me. I don't have a right to carry this grudge. If Jesus forgave me for everything, ain't nobody done for to me what I've done to him. I'm going to make this right right now. I can't even sing one more song. I can't act like I'm pray, praying or anything else until I get because he said, get it right. What would happen? Do you know what would happen? Oh, I'll tell you. We'd have revival right there. The Holy Spirit would begin to move like we haven't seen the Holy Spirit move. Do you know why? Because it wouldn't be about self anymore. It'd be about Him. Leave your gift at the altar. The other thing that that tells me is a lot of worship that we do that we think we're doing is probably not sincere. Oh, but I'm singing the songs with all my heart. Yeah, but you're also carrying unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, idolatry, and all other things in your heart. And, and can I tell you what the Holy... Can I tell you what? I want to feel God. I do too. I want you to feel God's conviction. Man, I'd love it if the Holy Spirit would move. I'd love it if he'd move on me. I'd love it if he'd move in any places. You've got to repent. Re right now, stop what you're doing. Hit your knees. Repent. Make it right. Make it, don't sing another word of this song. Don't pray one more prayer. Don't, don't, act, don't put that smile on and act like everything's right. Your heart's not right before me. Get it right right now and then sing and then pray and then and then you'll know what real joy and peace and freedom is. You know what would happen in the body of Christ across America if we'd do that? Really just, if we'd just do what it says. Oh my, what a revival we'd have. Here, Haggai the prophet says, I want you to go up to the mountain of sacrifice, of communion, where you remember the price that's been paid for you. I want you to get the wood, and I want you to bring it back, and I want you to spend time letting this temple be made what I've called it to be. Build what, let your work, your effort, your time, your sacrifice, let it go towards what I'm doing and desire to do in your life. Verse 9, he reminds them again, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, notice this phrase. New Testament, particularly charismatic Christians may not like this, but I want you to note this is Bible right here. You brought it home, and God speaking, God says, I. Is that what your Bible says? Anybody? Okay, just want to make sure. I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Does your Bible say that? Says the Lord or says the Lord of hosts? Okay, I just want to make sure about that. I blew it away because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. I think that word runs is very important too. Something that is convenient and comfortable for us, we don't have to work ourselves up for that. Oh, man, we got all kinds of energy for that. Oh, we can do that. How many of you like to shop? Raise your hand. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to hurt you. If I announce tomorrow, hey, we're not having church next Sunday. Instead, it has been provided for everybody $500 that wants to go, we're going to Opry Mills. Somebody's provided $500 free shopping spree. The only thing is you got to get up at 5 o'clock and be here at 5.30 so that we can get on the road and get there. And by the way, breakfast is provided as well. We're going to stop at a neat breakfast place. We're going to have breakfast. We're going to go shopping. We're going to have a, and the money's provided. It's been provided for. Everything you need has been provided for. Transportation is provided. All you got to do is come. I'll tell you, this house will be more full on Sunday morning, and you'd be here at 5.30 too. I know you would. Now, some of us guys are sitting there saying, not me, brother. Bless the Lord, not me. I'll sleep that morning. That's okay. There's a special hunting and fishing trip, all provided for. 
If you can get here at 5.30 on Sunday morning, we're going to board a special plane. We are going up to Montana and Alaska. We're going to make a circuit around. We're going to have the best guided tour with the people that are guaranteed that you're going to bring down some special game and some special fish. No cost charge. It's been provided for. All you got to do is sacrifice, get here early, put on a smile, get what you have to, you know, get your gear, be ready. Man, we'd have guys in the parking lot that come in their Jeeps and their trucks. They'd have all their equipment lined up. They'd be all dressed for the hunt. They'd be 5.30. They'd probably be here at 4.30. Ready to go. Coffee in hand in your thermos. I st- there you go. What day is it? And I see, I still hadn't hit me because I wouldn't show up for either one of those trips. But, ha-ha, if somebody said... 5.30 Sunday morning, all expenses paid. Seats right behind the bench at Rupp Arena for the next Kentucky game. All you got to do is come wearing your Kentucky gear, dress in your blue, show up and be ready. Oh, everything's been paid for at the hotel. Your meals are all provided, and you're going to come watch the game and then be a special guest in the locker room. I guarantee you I'll be there at 3 in the morning. I'll be ready to go. Can I tell you something? All expenses have been paid. The blood of Jesus Christ has paid the price for your eternal forgiveness and your eternal freedom. What you could not pay for has been paid for. And the only thing he asks us to do is to every day present this life that By the way, he gave us. Try breathing without his help. Try making that heartbeat without his help. Try getting up and moving without his help. And he said, everything that you've got, I've given you. Now I ask you to give it back to me all day, every day. And that, my friend, is worship. You can sing all day long and never worship one time, but if you'll give me everything you've got, that's worship whether you ever sing a song or not. Now how many are going to show up early for that? Wouldn't it be great if we could be as enthusiastic about things that matter? About things that change our life? About things that change other people's lives? See, in case you were wondering if we don't fit this prophetic category, I hope that little illustration lets you know, as fun as it was, we are exactly who Haggai was talking to. Because see, if it's something about this temple, about ourselves, we'll run to it. We'll get excited about it, smile on our face. But if it's the kingdom of God and it requires any sacrifice, any inconvenience, any lack of comfort, God says, go to the mountain. Build this temple. He says, if you don't, I can't listen. Let's well, just mean of God to blow their blessings away. God cannot bless what he does not author. And God will not bless what will keep you from him. See, he is your life. And if what you're doing, saying, thinking is keeping him from him who is your life, God can't bless that. Why would he? See, because that's destroying you. Why would a God who loves you aid and abed your destruction? So instead, he says, I'm blowing it away. It's like the father or the mother who says to a child, I've given you all these blessings. I've given you this car, this home, this, but you're not. You're living a life in a way that's destroying you. I'm taking the keys. I'm taking some of these blessings, these privileges away. Is that hatred? No. Sometimes kids will look at it that way, but it isn't. It's actually love that says, see, you're dest- this is destructive. I've got to take this away. And God's saying, I blew it away. You were expecting a great return from it. I know you were, but I blew, I, I, I blew it away. I took it away. I removed it from you. Why? We say, why? Because my house... This temple that I formed for my glory, it's in ruins. You've taken all your time, all your effort, all your energy to build your own kingdom, and you're not focusing on my kingdom in you. You're not focusing on my life, and it's just, it's just neglected. It's in ruins. 
So God goes on to say, I called, so therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, verse 10. The earth withholds its fruit. I called, notice that, I called. God says, I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. God says, I call, I'm not, I'm not allowing the blessing. I don't believe God would do that. Well, he just said it. Well, that's Old Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, book Acts, I believe it's chapter 5. God's doing this great move of the Holy Spirit, powers all over the place. Everybody's getting excited. God's not demanding that they do it, but they're just of themselves. Those who have extra excess land and money, they, they want to be a blessing to others, so they're taking their excess and they're giving it away, and then they're letting their money be pooled and trusting it to the apostles, and they're, they're giving to those who have need so that there was no lack. It's an amazing statement. The Bible says there was no lack among them. I mean, they just had everything they needed. But then Ananias and Sapphira, they decided, well, we've sold this land, and, and, and we're going to keep a large part of it for ourselves. But when we go to the altar, we want to be in on this. We want everybody to think we're real religious and holy too. We want to be celebrated too. So we're going to act like we're giving everything when we're only giving a part. And so they come to the altar in this holy time, focused not on God but on themselves. Because what are they looking for? They're looking for how they're going to look. Wouldn't it be amazing if we were more concerned about the glory of God and how our lives look on God than how we look? And so they come and they go through the first it's Ananias. He comes and he goes through this little charade and he's struck dead at the altar. Well, that'd make for an interesting church service too. All you folks who are longing for, boy, I want the return of New Testament Christianity. You better think about what you're wanting. I don't know about you, but I don't know exactly how I'd explain that to Channel 6. I don't know. He came up to offer sacrifice and it's just boom. Then his wife came in to do the same, boom, same day. Are you saying God did it? I'm probably not like Peter. I said, I don't know, but I didn't do it. <laughs> it just happened. And we laugh at that, but that really happened, guys, in the New Testament. Do you know why? Because they were merchandising with the, with the holiness of God. They were playing with the glory of God. They were just for their own benefit messing around with the sacredness of God. God says, I blew your blessing away. Couldn't bless it because I didn't author it. It's destroying you. I won't bless it. He says, I called for a drought. Wouldn't let the rain come. Wouldn't let the oil come. Wouldn't let the new wine come. I would not bless the labor of your hand. So, what do you do? When you stop and you reflect and you realize, hey, I've been focused on myself and not God. I've been building my own kingdom and not God's. Well, here's what Zerubbabel did. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord your God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. What did they do? In unity, they came together and simply obeyed God and stood in awe of Him. Now, I want you to notice what happens next. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. I don't know, I guess I'd call that a revival. Their spirits got stirred up. See, here's what most of us want to do in New Testament modern Christianity. We want God to stir up our spirits so that then we will obey the voice of the Lord. And there are plenty of teachers out there who will tell you that's the only way it will ever work. Interesting that even under the Old Covenant, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that's not quite the way it worked. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, and then God stirred up their spirits. Otherwise, they did what God said, and then God sent revival. It wasn't that God sent revival, and then they could do what God said. They did what God said, and then God sent revival. 
Well, that's Old Testament. Well, I'm so glad you keep bringing that up. I want to tell you what the New Testament says. Over and over and over and over again. John the Baptist, Jesus, they said this. Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Over and over again, the beginning of the message of the gospel is repent. 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 Do you know what that word means? Change. I can't do that. God's got to do that for me. He already paid the price for you. The minute you take the first step, his spirit will empower you, but he will not make you take the first step. You have to choose to obey God. When you choose to obey God, the spirit of God, many of you are waiting. I can't get free of this because I can't do it without God. The blood of Jesus is already shed. He's already poured out his spirit on you. All you got to do is begin to take the first step in obedience, and then he will stir your spirit. But obedience comes before the stirring, not the other way around. It's amazing to me that there's almost a false gospel out there, a false narrative telling people the exact opposite of what God says, and we're buying it lock, stock, and barrel. And people are staying bound, and they're staying oppressed, and they're staying depressed, and they're staying in bondage to all kinds of things, and that has become the new normal for the body of Christ in America. We can't ever really be free of our bondages. We can't ever really be free of our flesh. We can't ever really walk in obedience to God. We can't ever really do this because, you know, we're just this weak, messy, messed up bunch of people. You were a weak, messy, messed up bunch of people. I was a weak, messy, messed up man. But the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleansed me from all of my sin. The power of the Holy Spirit came and empowered me, the same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead. And now I am called, and so are you if you're a child of God. You are called a saint of the most high God. You've been raised up together, made to set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus with all power, authority, might, and dominion, the armor of God, the power of his spirit, and the power of his word. Do not tell me that you can't be free. You can't. I don't care how many preachers get paid, how many millions of dollars to tell you that you can't. I'm telling you, you can't. And it doesn't matter that I said it. What matters is that he said it a long, long time ago. Well, I don't think that's still the way. It is still the way. And it's going to still be the way tomorrow. And it's going to still be the way if the Lord tarries 150 years from now. Because everything else changes, that book does not. God's kingdom does not. His plan does not. So the people's heart was stirred. What happened? Unity. They came together. Obedience. They obeyed the voice of the Lord. Which led to real worship. They feared the Lord. They stood in awe. What, what is the fear of the Lord? It's not being so terrified that I, I think God wants to hurt me or I think that God's mad at me. No, 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 no. The fear of the Lord is a sense of awe and reverence that says, God, how can I not do what you've asked? How can I not be what you've asked? And dear God, if there's any, any wicked way in me, try me, God. Test me. Show me. Do you know that's the prayer of the psalmist even in the old covenant? Try me and see. If there be. It wasn't because he thought he had it all together. It's just because he loved God so much he didn't want anything in his life that would interrupt fellowship with God. So he prayed, God, if there's anything wrong, if I've got an attitude that's out of place, if I'm, if I'm saying anything wrong, doing anything wrong, any ideas that I have, philosophies that I have, thoughts that I have that are wrong, I don't care how long I've carried them. I don't want anything but you, so search me, oh God. Try me, test me, and see. Because God, I don't want anything between me and you. Obedience leads to true worship, and then God's presence filled the place and his blessing could come. Verse 15, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. The 24th day of the sixth month, the second year of King Darius. 24 days. Because it was the first day, remember, when he first had that word? 24 days. 24 days. I think it's sometimes good... You know, Jesus said, count the cost before you build a tower. You don't want to be the person who starts out building and then realize right in the middle of it, we don't really have enough to finish it. I'm not really prepared to finish it. Count the cost. Before you go to war, gather your counselors together so that you're sure that the power that you have is going to 
be able to take the power of the other opposing army. Sometimes I think we make such quick. We get caught up in a moment. We get caught up in an emotion of a moment. And that's good as far as it goes, but it's like, oh, yes, yes, God, yes, God. That's good. But many times we do that without ever even thinking what we're saying yes, God, to. Oh, yes, God, I surrender my whole life to you. I'll be everything that you've called me to be. Go anywhere you've called me to go. Say anything you've called me to say. Yes, God. Until tomorrow when he says, okay, go here. Say this and do that. Oh, and by the way, stop saying that and stop doing that. I don't like that. And then it's like, well, wait, wait a minute, God. I can't do that. Wait a minute. Didn't you say I surrender? How surrendered are we? You know, one of the first steps, if you think about Old Testament sacrifice, one of the first steps in sacrifice is surrender. See, that animal can't be sacrificed until it's bound to the altar. Complete surrender. Total surrender. How surrendered are we? 24 days, but they did what God said. And then the Bible says that the presence of God, he says, I'm with you, says the Lord. Can I tell you something today? There is nothing going on in your life. There is nothing happening in this nation. There's nothing going on in your family or your marriage, and there's nothing happening in this church that the presence of God can't change. Not a thing. But you don't know what I'm dealing with. It doesn't matter. There is nothing that God can't change. Period. End of story. I've seen too much. I know too much. But we've got to hear the word of the Lord. You see, I think many times, and I'm about to close, but I think many times in that we've, we've become in this nation, and thank God we have great communicators. Not just do we have great communicators out in the world itself. We have great communicators in the body of Christ. Some of the best teachers and preachers with the best oratory skills I have ever heard in my life are out there right now. And if they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm thrilled. That's wonderful. But here's the problem. We've become a church, a body of believers in America that are easily entertained. So we can come to church and we can hear words and we can even be moved emotionally by the words that we hear. But I want you to understand something. Transformation doesn't come until you obey the word of the Lord. And many times we walk out of churches having been moved, having been touched, having been blessed, having been encouraged, and having been entertained. But we never take that step of obedience to actually do what God says. And then we look back over our lives and we try to figure out what is going on. Why am I not sensing the presence of God? Why am I not hearing the voice of God? Why am I not seeing the blessing of God? Why is God not you? Why am I still struggling here? Why do I still struggle with that? We're hearing it. We're being touched by it. We're being moved by it. We might even cry over it, but we're not obeying. It's when you obey that your spirit is stirred so that you are enabled to be and do what God's called you to do. But obedience comes first. It doesn't come second or third or fourth. It comes first. My kids are grown now. They don't have to do what I say. But when they were young, they did. And so if I said, Jonathan, Catherine, clean up your room. We're going to go to Dairy Queen, but not until everything in your room is cleaned up. You know, they could five hours later or two hours later or one hour later or 20 minutes later, I could come back and look in their room and it'd still be the same mess. And they could come up to me and they could hug me and say, Daddy, I love you. Oh, Daddy, you're the best. Oh, Daddy, you're so good to me. Oh, Daddy, I just thank you for that ice cream you're going to give me. Oh, Daddy, I love you so much. But if the room's not clean, oh, do you get it? Isn't that the way we treat God all the time? Oh, Father, I love you. Oh, God, you're so good to me. Oh, God, I thank you for the blessing you're going to bring into my life. And God says, when are you going to do that thing I just asked you to do? You know, last month I seemed, seemed to recall asking you to take care of this. It hadn't been touched. Oh, but Father, hallelujah. How dumb do you think God is? 
We wouldn't even expect our earthly fathers to do that. Do you know what a father would create if he did that all the time? If every time I said do something and my kids came, oh, I love you, but they never did what I said, but I took them to get the ice cream anyway, guess what kind of kid they're going to be? Do you know your heavenly father is much smarter than you are? And he's far more concerned about the outcome than you are. And if he knows that what you're doing is going to lead to destruction, I promise he's okay with saying no. Can I say that again? God has no problem with saying no. Now, he loves to say yes. I love to say yes. I always told my kids, I want to say yes. Everything in me wants to say yes. Why? Because I love you. But if necessary, I can say no. And God's a lot better than me. And God knows a whole lot more than I do. So you can say, well, I'm going to do it my way. You can. God will let you. But he will not bless you. And that's a problem. Trust me. That's a problem. But if you'll just simply do what God says, he'll say, now I can bless you. And I promise you, God's blessing is a whole lot better than ice cream. Although for me, it doesn't get much better than ice cream. But God's blessing is so much better. I want you to bow your heads with me today. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for today. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your anointing. We thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your word. God, we release this message to you today. You know the purpose for which you sent it. You know the reason. So, God, today we just release the message to you. We welcome you to take and speak into our hearts, into our lives, into this moment that we're in. Father, we yield to you. We want to obey your word. We want to bring glory to your name. So, Father, today we just welcome you to come and take this word, bring forth the fruit that you desire in our lives. In Jesus' name, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, just a moment. First, as always, I want to ask you, if you come into this place and you don't have a relationship with God today, that's where it all begins. You don't have the power and ability in and of yourself apart from God to do anything. But the glory of the gospel is you don't have to because if you will just come and surrender your life to Him, He will fill you with the power of His Spirit. His Spirit will come and reside within you and give you the ability to do everything He's asked you to do. You still have to obey Him. But at least then you have the power and the ability to do so. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, or things aren't right between you and God right now, before we pray with or about anything else, I want to pray for you. If you need to give your heart to Christ today or get right with God in any area of your life, would you lift your hand anywhere in this room? 